You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is part two of the story of Catherine Nevin, the Black Widow. the Nevins' marriage and history together before they brought Jack White's pub in British Bay, County Wicklow. They were not a happy couple, and Catherine engaged in a number of affairs. We learned about how Catherine had gone about approaching contacts that she had with IRA associations that she thought might kill her husband for her, and how she was trying to gain financial control of the property that the two owned together. The scene of Tom Nevin's death was suspicious. It looked like a stage break-in, and the guardie began to hone in on Catherine. She had a history with the guardie at the local station, making accusations of corruption and sexual assault against two members in particular. She wanted any investigation into her to look like harassment on their part. After Tom's death, while the investigation into her was ongoing, Catherine continued her propensity towards tall tales and made a number of complaints to the Garda Complaints Board about the Arklow Garda following her staff and customers, once by way of a major checkpoint that was often set up on the main road to check tax and insurance and to deter drink driving. She also continued to call on the Gardaí to investigate strange happenings at the pub. For instance, on the 29th of December 1997, some nine months after Tom's death, Catherine phoned Gardy saying that she had been assaulted. When they arrived, she was obviously quite drunk, and though she kept repeating her claims, she wouldn't make a statement. She asked for Tom Kennedy to be sent from the station. Evidently, she was so drunk and confused that she had forgotten that he was retired. She told them that a man had tried to rape her, and they saw broken glass behind the counter but still she would not make a written complaint. The guardie found a scrap of paper with a Northern Irish car reg number on it. She became belligerent with the guardie when yet more officers from Arklow Station were sent out, and eventually she had a member of staff show them the door. Meanwhile, the guardie had tracked down the car and the man who owned it, and explained what Catherine had alleged. He spoke to the police, although he said he was sick to the stomach from the amount of booze he had had the night before. But he wanted to clear things up. He told them about how, when he was en route from Dublin to Courttown Harbour, he and a friend had called into Jack White's. They decided that they would stay on there drinking and sleep in the cab of their truck as it was kitted out with beds and so on. At closing, they were refused a final drink by the barman, but Catherine intervened and had another poured for them. They kept drinking until half three, and when they went to leave, Catherine insisted that they stay upstairs rather than head back to the truck. One went to bed, and the other man stayed up drinking and talking with Catherine. She kept bringing up the troubles in the north, and gave him a story about how she had been involved in anti-British activities, including being stabbed, 
and told him that her husband had been killed by, quote, murdering druggy bastards while she was sleeping in bed, end quote. The guy fobbed her off and seemed uninterested in her tall tales, and Catherine lost the plot. She went mad, he said, so he ran up to his mate. He said that neither men had gone near Catherine in any sexual way, and most certainly had not assaulted her. He then pulled a set of keys out of his pocket and handed them to the guards, saying that they were Catherine's. She'd asked him to turn off her car alarm a few times the night before, when it was set off for no reason, probably the wind, and he'd forgotten to give the keys back to her when the two made a hasty retreat the next day. The second man's story lined up with the first's, and Catherine's staff confirmed the rest. But eventually, Catherine changed her mind about making a statement and decided she would tell Agarda from the Wicklow station her version of events. Her story seemed to line up with theirs well enough until it reached the next morning. After spending the early hours of the morning drinking and talking, everyone went to bed. But Catherine woke up to one of the men jumping on top of her in her bed. She jumped out of the bed and ran down the stairs and into the pub. She said the man followed her and broke glasses and then poured himself a large shot. She was screaming all the while. At some point, he put a piece of the broken glass to her neck. He grabbed her and tore a button from her nightgown and said lurid things to her. His friend appeared down the stairs and they fled. She ran after them and took note of the registration of the rig that they were driving as they sped away. She then said she rang the police. But given that this statement wasn't made until late February, and the men's stories was backed up by the statements of the staff, and did not back up Catherine's version of the events, the DPP dropped the case and no charges were brought. Once again, Catherine's story was just a bit unbelievable. On the 18th of May, 1996, when Jack White's pub was searched, another scrap of paper with Willie McLean's reg number was found in Catherine's bedside locker which led the police to his home in Harold's Cross. Willie had convictions in Northern Ireland for fraud and breaching the peace in the Republic. He wasn't surprised that the Gardaí turned up at his doorstep after Tom Nevin's death, nor were the Gardaí surprised that he hadn't come forward. He was still technically wanted for fraud up north, and was still engaging in smuggling activities and whatnot. He was interviewed by the Gardaí on the 3rd of August, 1996. Jerry Heaps' phone number had been retrieved from Catherine Nevin's phone book, and he too had been questioned along with John Jones and Pat Russell that summer. After Tom's death, the news concerning Justice Obuokla was that he had issued a pub license in Catherine's sole name to her, given that Tom's name had been on it as well before his death. What had happened was Catherine made this application to the Revenue Commissioners, who refused as licenses could only be issued to the same parties previously named. It was at this point that Obuokla intervened and authorized the revenue to issue the license, but this wasn't good enough and they said an order of the court would have to be made. This would mean a hearing in the court would have to be held, allowing objections by both the guardee and by Tom's family, who didn't want Catherine to inherit anything of Tom's. The day before the license with both names on was to lapse, the 29th of September 1997, Catherine applied to the court for extensions to serve after hours. There were a number of objections from the guardie, 
including that given the license was about to expire anyway, the extension would be useless. At this point, Catherine had been charged with her husband's murder, and the court was filled with press to hear the application. Judge Obuokla was presiding and decided to hold the hearing in camera, that is, in privacy, away from the reporters and the public. When in his chambers, away from the public eye, he made an order putting the license into Catherine's name. When the matter was next up in court in November of 1997, Obuokla commented that there was no transfer of license, only a renewal, to which there had been no objections, and he put the matter off again for another week. Obuokla would later insist in a statement after Catherine's trial that a license cannot be issued to a deceased person, and therefore the renewal was made in Catherine's name only. Despite Obuokla's insistence that the Gardaí were present for the discussions around this issue, they disputed this, saying that they had objected to the lack of notice for the application, and to the application itself. As Tom's family had feared, within three months of receiving her new license, Catherine Nevin sold Jack White's pub for £670,000. The money was frozen by revenue until Tom's estate could be settled. He had died intestate without a will, and his mother was contesting Catherine's ability to inherit. Back in September of 1996, the Gardaí had found out about Tom's £70,000 life insurance policy. On the 4th of December of that year, they visited Jack White's pub to put to Catherine the allegations of Jerry Heaps and William McLean made after Tom's death. The retired Inspector Kennedy, her alleged lover, was with her, and he didn't seem to be shaken by the allegations of conspiracy to murder. No one was able to understand why he continued to stand by her. Catherine refused to answer questions and just handed them her solicitor's information. Just a side note here, the name she gave them was Garrett Sheehan, who was a very experienced and eminent criminal lawyer. It says a lot that she already had somebody all lined up to represent her in criminal matters. Sheehan went on to become a judge in both the High Court and most recently the Court of Appeal. He retired last year, but the practice that he set up is still running and bears his name. After Tom's death, Catherine seemed to have an amnesty on those she had barred and was reveling in the attention that being newly widowed and the subject of a murder investigation brought her. But to everyone's shock and horror, she was also joking about how much time she might get in prison and discussing the various schemes she had come up with to explain Tom's murder and distance herself from responsibility. But despite her good mood and this seeming amnesty, the waitresses in the pub gave their statements to the Gardee anyway, recounting the non-existent relationship between Catherine and Tom, how Tom Kennedy was often in her bed when one of the staff would deliver up breakfast to her, and that there appeared to be something going on between Catherine and Obuokla. They recalled that Tom was a quiet, nice man and was lovely to work for, but that Catherine was a tyrant and treated Tom like shit. They remembered that Catherine's behaviour on the weekend of the murder was odd, to say the least, and she was in a particularly bad mood. Many of the staff would leave or be fired soon after the statements were given. On the 14th of April 1997, 
Catherine was charged with Tom's murder and conspiring to have him killed. She was stopped by two members of the investigating team when she was driving through Ballybock in Dublin's North City Centre, and seemed shocked when she was told that she was being arrested for one count of murder and three counts of conspiracy. She was brought to the Bridewell Garda station and was quickly remanded in custody. She went to the High Court a few days later to seek bail, which was granted. A trial date was set for January 2000, due to the backlog of court cases to be heard at the Central Criminal Court. When the trial commenced, unsurprisingly, the courtroom was packed with spectators and media. Catherine appeared well put together, and she had a determined and nearly defiant look to her throughout her days in court. Peter Charlton was the senior counsel for the state, with assistance from his junior counsel, Mr. Tom O'Connell. Paddy McEntee and Paul Burns, along with Garrett Sheehan, her solicitor, made up Catherine's defence team. Mrs. Justice Mella Carroll presided over the trial for Catherine Nevin's fate. Interestingly, Justice Carroll was the first woman appointed to the Irish High Court in 1980. But this trial soon fell apart when on the 26th of January 2000, it was discovered that the jury's deliberations could be heard from the balcony. A High Court crier, basically the guy who announces the judge and is an usher in the court, discovered that the jury could be heard and reported it to the registrar of the court. The jury were asked to keep their voices down, but the court officers could still hear sounds, if not actual words, coming from the room. The jury were discharged. There was a second attempt to start the trial, but it too collapsed on the 8th of February, when one of the jurors became ill. Finally, the third trial with a third jury commenced, and the lawyers began setting out their cases once again. Pre-trial applications mainly centred on the defence's protestations that media coverage would hinder the ability for Catherine to get a fair trial. In order to deal with this, the jury were barred from reading newspapers or listening to the radio or TV segments covering the trial. A further objection was brought up by the defence after newspapers began printing pictures of Catherine Nevin on the front pages. They called her a black widow and commented on her clothing, hair, makeup and choice of nail varnish. Justice Mella Carroll then ordered that there was to be no further comment on Catherine's appearance and that photographing her was now banned, but she refused to put off the trial any further due to these issues. But that wasn't the end of it. On the 25th of February, Charlton for the prosecution was up in arms over a misprint in the Irish Times which stated that, quote, one of the men's fingerprints was found at the scene of the crime, end quote, rather than none of the men's fingerprints. McEntee was up on his feet agreeing with Charlton and then suggested that the jury be discharged. This cheeky suggestion was met by quiet laughter from those present. Lawyers for Heaps, Jones and McLean also asked the court for an order stopping the press from improperly describing his clients. Justice Carroll ordered that nothing other than factual statements were to be made by the press from then on, and banned any statement from the IRA regarding Tom Nevin from being published. McEntee made another application to have the jury discharged when a piece was run in the Evening Herald about Judge Donoghue Buchla. Justice Carroll brought in counsel for the Herald and threatened to order them to pay the costs of the trial if it was forced to start over. She was livid and stated, quote, 
I have never known a trial where there was as much intrusion by the newspapers. A fair trial comes before the rights of the mass media to make money, end quote. She ended up dismissing the defense applications, and the trial continued on. At the trial, it emerged that the Gardee and the special branch had a file on Catherine Nevin and her involvement with the IRA. But after the file was turned over to the court, the trial judge ruled that it was not relevant to the proceedings in the case. It was revealed after the trial that the Barry House had been on the list of pubs that the Gardee thought were linked to the IRA, but that Jack White's had been removed from that list. Some speculate that it may well be that Catherine had turned informant for the Gardaí, and that this may be the reason that Tom felt he wasn't in a position to sell his half of the business and be free of Catherine once and for all. When opening statements were made, Charlton went through the meaning of murder, and explained how it was not necessary to have pulled the trigger to be guilty of the charge. He further explained that in terms of solicitation, it was only the person asking who was guilty. The responding guardie took to the stand to describe the scene that they had met the morning Tom was found dead, and a man from the alarm company described the system that the Nevins had in Jack White's, and told the court which panic alarm had been tripped. Catherine's bedroom was described, as well as the trail of jewellery leading from the landing upstairs to the kitchen. McEntee questioned the guardie closely and began to imply that the relationship between the Nevins and the local guardie was frosty, and began his argument that the local force was trying to set up Catherine due to the bad blood. He needed to show that they were dishonest and corrupt. The guardie then gave evidence of their interactions with Jerry Heaps and how he had showed them where he and Catherine had gone on their drives. The routes that Jerry had taken them on were verified by the staff of Jack White's to be Tom's routine and route. The jury were told about what Catherine had said the morning of the murder to the guardie and about the firearms test that took place in the kitchen. They were also told about how she had been brought in and questioned, but refused to say anything to the guardie and was uncooperative. The forensics team and Dr. John Harbison gave evidence about Tom's cause of death, his injuries, and of Tom's blood alcohol level. They described the gunshot wound as being close range, not more than two metres away when shot, likely closer to one, and that it was so close in range that pieces of the wadding used in the cartridges were found lodged in Tom's body. Dr. Harbison said that there was no signs of a struggle, and Tom was probably conscious after the shot for no more than 30 seconds. Evidence was given from staff members about phone calls from a Mr. Ferguson, a.k.a. Pat Russell, and that Judge Obuokla had stayed in the pub overnight on various occasions. Evidence was given of the distant relationship that Tom and Catherine had, and that Tom Kennedy was a frequent visitor at the pub, often staying overnight with Catherine also. The staff also recounted Catherine's odd behaviour the night of Tom's death her odd concern about checking the washing machine and closing the curtains, refusing to let the staff stay after the nightclub, and so on. McEntee was getting irritated by the constant bringing up of the judge and the retired inspector, given that both men denied that they had had any sexual relationship with Catherine. But the staff were speaking from their own personal knowledge, and therefore the testimony was allowed. Catherine had planned obsessively for up to six years before her husband's death to ensure that suspicion would not fall on her. 
she set up a holiday that Tom took with another bartender to the Canaries to help her to imply that Tom was gay and was having an affair with him. The barman in question took the stand and vehemently denied this. Just as Tom Kennedy was about to take the stand, Charlton requested that he be considered a witness for the defence, so that Charlton would be able to cross-examine him on the nature of his relationship with Catherine. But this request was refused, and his testimony went as might be expected. He denied having an affair with Catherine, and said that he valued his family too much to engage in that sort of thing. He said he was only ever present in Catherine's bedroom when she was ill, and at times that he had been requested to help with her medication by Tom himself. Most certainly he had never stayed in the flat in Mount Shannon Road with her, and had never stayed the night in Jack White's. The examination of Donica Obuoclo went much the same way. He denied anything improper, and said he was friends with both of the Nevins. Pat Russell told the court about how he'd been involved in helping Catherine to try and transfer their assets to another accountant without Tom's knowledge. This demonstrated to the jury that Catherine was trying to get control of the pub and their other properties, but Tom's intervening death meant that she didn't have to go through with it in the end. There seemed to have been a much simpler solution for Catherine. Willie McLean took the stand rather nonchalantly. He wasn't worried about appearing as a witness or discussing his criminal history or his affair with Catherine, which he said Tom definitely knew about because Tom had walked in on them in bed together. He gave evidence of Catherine attempting to get back with him, and then forthrightly asking if he would kill Tom for her. Catherine's lawyers alleged during the trial that Willie McLean had been nothing more than a furniture mover, and that was the extent of his relationship with Catherine. At the trial, Catherine's junior counsel put it to him that he was a deceiver and a con man, and that he would have to have paramilitary contacts to be able to smuggle goods across the Monaghan border. Counsel later apologised for that final comment, and it was pointed out that those kind of allegations could make life very difficult for McLean in his home county if it were to be allowed to stay on the record. Further, it would put off people from coming forward to give evidence in the trial in general. Just as Mella Carroll told the jury that the prosecution had presented witnesses such as Willie McLean, quote, with all their faults, end quote, the similar fact evidence of McLean was thin, given that Catherine hadn't suggested that Tom be killed during a bank holiday or robbery, but she told them that he had supplied evidence of motive. John Jones took the stand and outlined how he had come to know the Nevins and Catherine's attempts to solicit him to murder her husband. He was a reluctant witness and did not want to discuss his involvement in Sinn Féin or any organisational links that he may have had to the IRA. At the trial, Catherine's senior, Paddy McEntee, put it to him that Catherine had never asked him to murder her husband, to which he responded, quote, Mr. McEntee, I would expect you to say that. You're defending the woman, but I'm telling you that she sat in front of me and asked me to get the IRA to kill her husband. McEntee then brought up his record for being in possession of stolen goods. John explained that he had purchased a car from an ad in a newspaper 23 years previously, and when he discovered that the paperwork wasn't in order, he put the car away. Soon after, the Gardaí were upon him. He said he had employed an eminent barrister to fight his case as it was genuine, and Republicans often got a hard time with the Gardaí. The barrister he referred to was McEntee himself. Finally, Jerry Heaps took the stand. 
He outlined his encounters with Catherine in the big white car and the offers of money she had for him to do away with her husband and how she had shown him a bank book with lodgements when he said that they would need more money to consider it. At the trial, McEntee put it to him that he should have just said no, that he wasn't in the IRA anymore and to leave him be. Why didn't he just say that? Heaps responded that he had kept talking to her out of curiosity. He told McEntee that he had told two men that he knew from the local pool hall in Finglas, known only to him as Redzer and Macker, and he understood from them that they were going to warn Catherine off the idea. Catherine was confident, though, that there was no real evidential link to her to convict her of the murder of her husband. She roundly denied statements made by Gardie, claiming that they had a vendetta against her, and insisted that the three men were simply lying. She had not asked them to kill her husband, or had any affairs with the men she had been tied to. The hard evidence gathered by the Gardie had nothing to do with her, or she had an explanation for it. Obviously, Heaps had gotten the details of her bank book from someone else, and the uncrumpled newspaper that had been found on her bed was a Garda plant. The other evidence, like the ties that had bound her wrist, were present. Surely those were real, hard evidence, and not this circumstantial evidence that she could explain away. She remained composed and attentive throughout the whole trial, and appeared to many to be coldly confident that she would walk away from this once the trial was over. Just as Mella Carroll told the jury that they could pick and choose what they believed of the witnesses, that they were imperfect people, and that it was up to the jury to decide what the truth of the matter was. Finally, Catherine Nevin herself took the stand. She could have chosen to stay silent, but the jury would have been able to infer an element of guilt if she had refused to take the stand. She was meticulous in her appearance, and that standard was maintained throughout the trial. She didn't avoid the photographers, despite Justice Carroll ordering the ban of pictures of her, and really didn't seem to mind the attention. McEntee approached his client with caution, and scanned the judge and jury for reactions as he asked his carefully prepared questions. Catherine's response was to paint a picture of Tom that was quite different from how his friends and family knew him to be. And then she said he was a member of the IRA. She said she hadn't told anyone up until this point because Tom had made her promise not to. Both sets of lawyers seemed to be surprised by this revelation. Given that the staff of Jack White's had already been questioned, there was no way for McEntee to put this to them now to corroborate or not. He hadn't even been able to set up the revelation for her. It just came right out of the blue. She described how meetings were held at the pub with lots of money and arguing. She then went on to describe how the IRA had been involved in the purchase of another pub in Tala, but that this deal had fallen through because something had happened between John Jones and Tom. Catherine described an incident where she had noticed the light on in one of their flats and decided to look into it. When she opened the door to the building, she was attacked by two men, cutting her hands on the glass that they went after her with. When she told Tom about this, he told her not to go to the police, but instead they went back to the flat and collected a bunch of wires and TV components. If Catherine could get the jury to believe this, it would make up for the weakness of the story that Tom's death was part of a botched robbery, given that only the takings from the pub had been lifted and her jewellery had all been accounted for, forming a perfect trail from her bedroom to the murder scene. She then went on to describe her marriage as a good one, although she accused Tom of being an alcoholic. She told the court that they were still intimate together, 
despite the fact that they had had separate bedrooms for years. She denied any relationship with Tom Kennedy or Judge Abuakla. The more she talked, though, the more she lied. And the more she lied, the more difficult it was to keep the lies straight. She began contradicting her own testimony. She'd only met with Tom Kennedy for drinks once or twice. And then she said maybe five or six times and that maybe they had shared a meal. Tom Nevin was a violent alcoholic. And then she said he did drink way too much, but she made sure that he got rest and was very little trouble to her. She said Tom couldn't go to the bank on the 16th because he was busy working. And then she said it was because he was still in bed, hung over. She said the intruders never spoke. And then that they demanded to know where the jewellery was. The knife was short. No, it was long. The intruders were from Dublin. No, they were local. Any time Catherine denied an accusation of one of the other witnesses, it became clear that these were points her own legal team had not pushed the witnesses on. For instance, she said Jerry Heaps never attended Jack White's opening. But when Jerry was on the stand, he was never questioned about this. So either Catherine was ad-libbing so much that the legal team didn't know what she was going to say, or they had decided not to put it to him and attempted to gloss over it. On the 16th of March 2000, as the cross-examination of Catherine was to begin, word came to the court, through the morning news on RTE no less, that Catherine had been admitted to St. James's Hospital. Information trickled into the court and eventually a doctor arrived to say that Catherine had ingested an overdose of paracetamol and codeine. She would be able to resume the stand on the 22nd of March, after the Patrick's Day holiday. The judge and Charlton for the state were not at all pleased. When Catherine turned up again at court, Mella Carroll demanded an explanation. And boy, did she get one. Without the jury present, Catherine described how she had returned to the flat that she was staying in after her last day of testimony, and that there was a man there waiting for her, who she recognised as an associate of her husband's. And he said she was talking too much and naming names she shouldn't. He then forced her to take tablets he pulled from his pocket. He left, and she vomited and passed out. Somehow, this intruder had made it in and out of the flat that was being watched by the guardee. Her brother Vincent had found her when he went to collect her. She was lying in her pink pyjamas on the couch, unconscious. But if a man had forced her to take the tablets as soon as she entered the flat, how had she gotten changed from the suit that she had worn that day? And why had her neighbour heard her moving around at 7am that morning? Moreover, she had visited one of her neighbours the previous evening and told him over some food how she was worried about the IRA and how she had been receiving death threats. The emergency services arrived the smell of liquor and a bunch of prescription pills scattered across the table. They thought Catherine was pretending to be unconscious. Washing up liquid was later found in her vomit, implying that she had drank it to make herself throw up. There was no evidence of a struggle. Finally, her cross-examination began. She was asked why she couldn't see the intruders, given the light was on. In response to this, she said it was off. Maybe the guardie had lied about it being on. Then she was asked why she hadn't used the panic button in her bedroom. 
She said she didn't know it was there. Then she was asked why she couldn't open the door when it was ajar by about six inches when she got downstairs. She said she did try, but she couldn't. And then she was asked why hadn't she looked for Tom. She said that Tom had told her not to, that he could look after himself if they were ever broken into. She insisted that Tom was a member of the IRA, but said that she wasn't and she didn't support them. She never had affairs, and those that said she did were lying. She most certainly had never asked anyone to kill her husband. She remained calm on the stand as the barrage of accusations were put to her by Charlton. The Nevins and June Flanagan, Tom's first wife, then gave evidence refuting Catherine's accusations. They said Tom wasn't gay, wasn't an alcoholic, and most certainly wasn't violent. It was difficult for them to give evidence, but they couldn't stand by and have Catherine's accusations about Tom go on unchallenged. The prosecution's closing speech went through the evidence that they had presented and asked the jury to consider who they believed, their witnesses like the staff at Jack White's and Jones, Heaps and McLean, or Catherine Nevin, who had a financial motive for wanting her husband dead. Tom O'Connell, Jr. counsel, reminded them that Tom had been surprised in the kitchen and had no time to react to the shot that killed him. He also highlighted that there was no way Catherine could have smelled the shot unless she had been present in the kitchen. He reminded them that the crime scene seemed contrived to the investigating guardee, and there were no signs of forced entry in the pub. Catherine had sent all the staff away that night and took no bookings in the B&B that weekend. Paddy McEntee's closing statement took a full 10 hours. He called into question the credibility of the three men who said that Catherine had asked them to kill her husband, given that they all had criminal histories and two out of three of them admitted close ties to the IRA. None of them had approached the guardie when they were first purportedly propositioned by Catherine. Jerry Heaps had even refused to sign his statement to the guardie. McEntee outlined that if they had any doubt at all, then his client should be given the benefit of that doubt, and they should not convict her. Justice Mella Carroll went through all the evidence that had been presented in the trial when giving her instructions, and told the jury that it was up to them to decide the weight that they should give to each witness's testimony. The trial had lasted 61 days from its beginnings, 42 from its third attempt to start. It was most certainly a marathon for all those involved. The jury retired at ten past three on Friday the 7th of April 2000. Saturday and Sunday came and went and no verdict had yet been returned. By Sunday afternoon, Justice Carroll instructed that a majority verdict would be accepted. The days spent deliberating passed one by one until it was half six on Tuesday evening. The six men and six women returned to the court that evening. Catherine remained composed as they took their places. On count number one, the murder of Tom Nevin, Catherine was found guilty by a unanimous verdict. Count two, soliciting John Jones, guilty 11 to 1. Count three, soliciting Jerry Heaps, guilty by unanimous verdict. And count four, soliciting William McLean, guilty by a majority of 11 to 1. The jury had believed the three men, the guardie, the forensic evidence, and the staff of Jack White's. Mella Carroll exempted the jury from any further service and spoke to Catherine. She said, quote, I do not intend to give you any lecture. You had your husband assassinated not once, but twice. Once in life, 
and in death by assassinating his character. She then sentenced Catherine to the mandatory life sentence. The remainder of the Nevin family were seen embracing and hugging the investigating guardee. Catherine was comforted by her shocked sister and brother. She, however, remained composed and showed no emotion whatsoever. She handed a ring to her sister Betty and was then led away to Mountjoy Prison. She took up residence in the comparatively cushy environment of the Doka Centre. She was entitled to apply for parole in 2007, but did not pursue this as she believed that applying for it would be tantamount to admitting her guilt, which she refuses to do. In the wake of the trial, the media restrictions were lifted and there was a field day of reporting on the trial. In October 2006, the Nevin family brought suit against Catherine Nevin to prevent her from collecting rent on the properties that had been owned by them jointly. The pub had been sold in 1997 for nearly £700,000 and the rental properties were valued at over €800,000. This, in addition to the insurance money, means that Catherine would stand to be a very rich woman should she ever be released from prison and if the Nevins were to be unsuccessful in their actions. Originally, Tom Nevin's mother had secured a caveat from the court against Tom's estate, basically freezing all the assets and preventing Catherine from inheriting everything, as Tom had died without a will. Catherine's last appeal was in April of 2009, though she had already gone through the normal appeal procedure with that case being dismissed. She sought then to have her conviction declared a miscarriage of justice. She wanted the state to declare whether or not the three men who had testified against her were ever informants for the state and whether they had paramilitary connections. Her legal team had been informed by an unnamed prominent journalist that Willie McLean had in fact been a paid informant, and further information was provided by the contents of the Barron Report, a judicial inquiry that was held into the 1974 Dublin and Monaghan bombings. Hugh Hartnett, senior counsel, argued that the three men had every reason to collude and lie. The Criminal Court of Appeal delivered its verdict on the 22nd of November 2010 and said that the trial judge had acted properly in limiting the facts that were introduced in the trial in relation to the witnesses' backgrounds and allowing only what was relevant to be heard. They found that there was nothing present that could have further assisted Catherine in her trial in the documents that the defence had submitted to the court relating to the three men and no order of disclosure could be made about the men. The case was dismissed. In 2000, a judicial inquiry was launched by the Minister for Justice to look into the circumstances of Obukla's transfer of the licence to Catherine Evans' sold name and the complaints against Gardas Murphy and Whelan. The two guardie that had been accused by Catherine of sexual assault, corruption and impropriety hadn't been returned to active duty until that same year, just days before the Murphy inquiry began. There was a lot of coverage in the press. Obukla placed the blame on customs and excise for dropping the ball and putting the issue of the license in his court, so to speak. Catherine's civil solicitor, Donica Lahan, said that he was unaware of the friendship between the judge and his client. Midway through the inquiry, however, the two guards let it be known that they no longer wished to pursue the matter. The inquiry concluded with a statement that Justice Obukla had acted in error when he had heard the application regarding the license, given that he knew Catherine Nevin, but that this did not amount to misconduct on the judge's part. But who fired the gun? Who is responsible for the shot that killed Tom Nevin? There are three main suspects, 
Dutchy Holland, a man also connected with Veronica Guerin's death, an anti-drug activist and ex-IRA member who got kicked out for misappropriating IRA funds, and Catherine herself, of course. Dutchy Holland was a well-known hitman and had bought a house in British Bay in the early 90s. He had been seen in Jack White's before, and his motorbike was remembered as being parked outside by staff members. He was involved in one of the most infamous of the Dublin gangs at the time, and had been in and out of prison for burglary and drugs charges. He was associated with criminals of the likes of the General. Veronica Guerin herself had actually turned up at Jack White's at one stage. She wanted to talk to Catherine just after Tom was murdered, but Catherine chased her off and made a complaint to the Gardaí about it. A few weeks later, Veronica Guerin was dead. The IRA seemed to get spooked by this because the two deaths could be linked through the pub and decided to take a hit out on Dutchie. He fled the country, and soon the guards decided that Catherine probably hadn't had enough finances available to her to arrange the contract with him and dropped that line of inquiry. The next suspect had previous IRA connections and was arrested in September of 1996 under the Offences Against the State Act in order that he could be questioned in relation to Tom Nevin's murder. This was all done very quietly at the time. After he was stood down from his elite unit in the IRA, he began operating protection rackets for business owners. The IRA weren't too pleased about this, and eventually he decided that he would use his leadership skills to help whip up crowds and support in Dublin against the rising problem of heroin use. He held kangaroo courts in neighbourhoods where the crisis had reached epidemic proportions, and neighbours would accuse others of involvement in drugs. Drug users would be attacked and forcibly evicted from their homes by the rabble that he whipped up. It's possible that the Nevins knew him from their time in running a pub in Dolphin's Barn, where he was active in this anti-drug movement, Dolphin's Barn being one of the areas in the city worst hit by heroin. This man also had ties to the Barry House in Finglas, given his Republican contacts. It's more likely that this guy was hard up for a bit of cash, and may have taken Catherine more seriously than the others if she had solicited him to kill her husband. And finally, maybe it was Catherine. But if it was Catherine who fired the shot that killed her husband, a few questions remain, though. She must have had an accomplice, as how else did Tom's car end up in Dublin, and where did the gun go? It was proven that the rifle belonging to the Nevins, which was in the storeroom, had not been used recently, so the actual murder weapon must have been gotten rid of. It's unlikely that Catherine would have been able to pull all that off herself. Maybe some of her unusual behaviour also points to her accomplice. If the car was taken earlier in the evening, well before the shooting, perhaps this explains why the curtains were drawn in the restaurant. And if her accomplice was hidden somewhere in the complex, it might explain why Catherine was in and out of the residence and checking on a washing machine that wasn't even running that night. If she shot him, it would explain how he was so surprised by the shooting himself. He saw his wife, albeit not the best wife, down in the kitchen. Nothing unusual there. Not until the rifle is pointed at his chest and it discharges, quicker than he can react. It may also further explain how it was that Tom's glasses were so perfectly positioned on his face after falling from the height of the stool upon being shot. Did his wife take the time to place them carefully back on his face before she began her staging of the scene? 
In 2015, reports emerged that Catherine Nevin was allowed out of the DOCA Centre on limited day release to attend courses on addiction studies. Of course, the tabloid newspapers had a field day with her various releases. She was photographed leaving the prison grounds and getting on a bus that took her to the adult education facility across town. A reporter followed her the whole way there. More recently, in 2017, it's been revealed that she has been granted temporary release and is being supervised by the probation services in order that she can get treatment for a brain tumour. Her diagnosis was announced in 2016, but by 2017, she was no longer under the care of the Irish Prison Service in order to facilitate treatment. Last year, Tom Nevin's siblings were able to get a ruling in the High Court that Catherine's conviction was admissible and could be used in evidence as part of the disinheritance proceedings that they were taking against her. Catherine Nevin has decided to appeal this decision, and it's going to be heard by the Supreme Court. Though, in my humble opinion, this might just be because there's an issue with the wording in the piece of legislation about disinheritance that's open to interpretation, and the Supreme Court would like to rule on it just to clear it up. Boring legal stuff, I know, but that means that despite her illness, the saga of Catherine Nevin's life continues on. From last I can see, the case was scheduled to appear, for mention only, on Thursday the 22nd of March of this year, 2018. Generally, little will come of a mention in the Supreme Court, so I don't hold out much hope for any concrete developments in the case in the coming months. And frankly, given her grave illness, it's unlikely that she'll benefit financially from her husband's death at this stage. Tom Nevin was a much-loved son and brother and was known as a kindly man who was good to those around him. He and the horrific tragedy that ended his life will not be easily forgotten in Wicklow or Ireland. Catherine's conniving and sly nature and cool composure in telling lies to both the Gardaí and to the court will also be remembered for a long time yet. Thank you for listening to the Mens Rea podcast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter at MensReaPod. Join in on the discussion at the MensReaPod discussion group, or you can send us in your questions, comments or suggestions to MensReaPod at gmail.com. I'd like to take a moment to thank our supporters on Patreon. Your support means a lot and helps to defray some of the production costs of the podcast. A big shout out and thank you to our newest patron, Deirdre Byrne. Thank you so much for your support, Deirdre. I appreciate it so, so much. If you would like to sponsor the podcast, head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. I'd also like to thank our five-star reviewers on Apple Podcasts. With thanks to Kristen Annette P. I'm glad to hear that you find the cases interesting and that they're new to you. That's one of the reasons I started the podcast, is that I wanted to hear lesser-known cases and cases from near me, so I'm glad that you find them interesting. To Nekachan61, again, I'm really glad that you find the cases that I choose interesting. They are lesser-known cases for the most part, although we might be doing some slightly more well-known cases in the near future. Thanks to the podcast Whining About Crime, another great podcast out of Canada. And that's going to be it for today. Thank you guys so much. I love getting feedback on the podcast and what you guys think of it and having interactions with you guys as well. So if you do want to talk more, do head over to the discussion group on Facebook and join in over there too. 
This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources used for today's episode can be found on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Our theme song is Quinn's Song, First Dance by Kevin MacLeod. With thanks to Ronan McHugh for help with sound engineering. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.